0: through my puppet, Cosmo the Mystic Monkey. So I was an environmental education puppeteer. There was a group of us called Puppets on the Path, and we were doing this. And I got invited into a children's hospital with Cosmo. And there was this little boy who, uh, I don't know, you know, anyway, something brainstem, everybody thought he was in a coma. And Cosmo has these articulating arms so he can literally reach out. So he reached out to this little boy and the little boy reached back and we were all just completely stunned. I mean, it's one of those moments I could say the rest is history.
1: Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next.
0: Uh, Holly Blue Hawkins, Holly Blue's double first name. Um, often I just go by Holly Blue. And I use the, uh, the she, et cetera, pronouns. I like to think of myself primarily as a natural death care advocate, nowadays doing a lot of uh, public education, um, interestingly, more and more uh, community organizing. Um, I've recently taken on the role of being a cemeterian and um, an author and a poet. I uh, am a graduate of the Gamliel Institute and now very happily on the faculty as well. Speakers Bureau of the Green Burial Council, a lot of different hats. What I will say is that although my primary work and teaching now is within the Jewish community, I also, um, as I like to say, uh, work beyond the Jewish radius as well uh, in my uh, natural death care work.
1: Recently, I heard Holly Blue present a little bit of her story, and I knew I wanted to hear more. She is practical and straightforward, and at the same time, a poetic storyteller with hippie roots. Before we recorded this interview, I only knew about her connection to end-of-life as an educator and as the Rosha. The leader of her local Chevra Kadisha. Kadisha means sacred society, and it's the group of people in a community who prepare a Jewish body for burial. Members of the group function to provide respect and honor to the deceased by ritually washing the body and dressing it in a white shroud. This is called a Tahara. Chevra Kadisha members also can serve as Shomrim, or watchers, whose purpose is to sit with the body before the funeral. It is a way to honor those who have died, to never leave the body alone through the transition from death to burial. Because of how involved Holly Blue is now in the end-of-life space, I was curious how her upbringing helped chart a path to here.
0: I will say that as I was growing up, uh, the, the subject of death was very ambiguous. And what I mean by that is that with animals, it was very much a part of life. Like when I was five years old, um, our dog Bow Wow had her puppies in the house. And I watched these four puppies being born and mama dog licking the puppies and all of that. Three of them were alive and one of them was not. And my parents were very matter of fact about it. This is just this is part of how life is there was that aspect of it and of course you know growing up where baby birds would fall out of trees and we would raise them and sometimes they would make it and sometimes they wouldn't and so on that level death was just very matter of fact on the other hand my mother of blessed memory both of her parents died when she was a baby and she was Raised by a group of Manhattan intellectuals as a what in those days you would you would describe as a ward of a family, so she wasn't exactly adopted into a, a a sort of a typical family, you know. And so and so there was a, and then she had this very traumatic situation of one of her best friends uh, riding his bicycle when they were all teenagers and getting hit by a car and die, and I think that that probably restimulated whole lot of stuff for her and so her behavior around human death unlike animal death was just very dramatic trauma response and so that was what I learned was a trauma response to death and and so that was the way I behaved you know that it was expected that you would just sort of like go into this altered state and it would all be very uh, strange and dramatic and and people were supposed to expect that you were off of your rails and treat you that way So but how did I actually feel? I couldn't tell you. I don't I don't know because I was so embroiled in in uh, in acting out the trauma response. So That that was that was my childhood uh, understanding of of death
1: it sounded like the world Holly Blue grew up in was far from how I understood her approach to end-of-life now, and I wanted to know when along the way that changed for her.
0: When it really shifted for me was uh, I, I lived in Hawaii in the 70s and 80s, and there was this remarkable teacher there in those days, a, a, a Japanese gentleman named Mitsuo Aoki, who I had the opportunity to study with, and I'm not even exactly sure why I was intrigued or drawn, or I don't, I don't, I don't remember my thinking. It was a long time ago, but I do remember that I felt really compelled to 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 spend time with Mitsaoki, and he was really quite remarkable. And then also, I was part of a group of friends who were um, students of Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and at that time she was still living in Southern California, so Hawaii was very accessible, and she she would go. Um, In describing that group of people, I would say they were devotees of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, she was Elizabeth. And and so she was going back and forth um, to Maui. And at the same time, that was when the early wave of AIDS hit the islands. And it was uh, I can you know I can even feel my heart chakra responding as I think about it now because within the space of a few months, not more than a year, a year and a half, almost the entire gay male population in the islands just disappeared one by one by one. You imagine having a family photo and watching the faces just disappearing, and that's what we were going through. So those two things together uh, really brought death up close and personal. I even had a time where, where uh, someone who um, we called each other brother and sister. And, and when he was stricken by AIDS, he um, asked me to take care of him and I did. And so I really had to face it. it. It was like nowadays with COVID, you know, where you don't know what it is that you might do. That's going to kill you. You know, when you're watching your friends age 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then die horrible deaths, you know. And so in a lot of ways, there was a great resonance with how things are now. I, I, I watch what's happening now, and I remember the early days of AIDS and the fear and the not knowing. And yet this was somebody I loved, and I had to take care of him. And obviously I lived to tell the tale. But the funny thing is how I really got into this work was through my puppet Cosmo, the mystic monkey. It's amazing. I mean, he's you know, he's still, I'm looking at him right now. He's got a place of honor over in the corner of my room. So I was an environmental education puppeteer. There was a group of us called puppets on the path and we were doing this and we built our own puppets, wrote our own scripts, songs, the whole bit. And, and, um, But I got invited over uh, to, I was living on Maui, I got invited over to Oahu to um, do a a children's program for something called the Human Unity Conference. And while I was over there, I got invited into a children's hospital with Cosmo. And there was this little boy who, uh, I don't know, you know, anyway, something brainstem, everybody thought he was in a coma. And... Cosmo has these articulating arms, so he can literally reach out. So he reached out to this little boy, and the little boy reached back. And we were all just completely stunned. And, you know, I i, I mean, it's one of those moments I could say the rest is history. You know, uh, I, I'm just like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this means. And in a lot of ways, it really... Was As I think about it now, it was the moment that sort of launched me into needing to understand what this life-death thing is, which in a lot of ways is what compelled me into Khabar Kadisha work later in life. I didn't know it at the time, but it was like, wait a minute, what is going on? I have to find out.
1: A map was beginning to form with the intersection of all these experiences, learning in Hawaii, befriending the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross devotees, Cosmo the Mystic Monkey, and Holly Blue's search to understand meaning in life and death. If you're not familiar, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a well-known psychiatrist who wrote a groundbreaking book in the late 60s called On Death and Dying, which contained her theory about the five stages of grief, now known as the Kubler-Ross model. I realized as we were talking that religion of any kind had been absent from this story. This wasn't particularly strange, and yet, as someone who now teaches at a Jewish learning institution and is deeply involved in Jewish death ritual, it was curious. So I asked.
0: I I still try to figure out how to say this because saying a convert doesn't work. Saying I'm a Jew by choice doesn't even work because I feel like Judaism chose me, as a friend of mine said the other day. I often describe myself as a refugee in Am Yisrael. Uh, I grew up in a in a really uh, religiously ambivalent environment, and as a, as a person of uncommon gender, I like to say um, I, there really was no safe place for me in the world that I grew up in, and so. Um, I had to start looking around and finding my spiritual community because I really needed one. It was a craving in my life, especially um, starting out when I when I lived in Hawaii. And this is definitely a, a bit of a, a side trip, but in a lot of ways, a very important one. Uh, when I first moved to Hawaii, and I was doing the classic homesteading hippie out in the middle of nowhere in Hawaii in the in the late seventies and early eighties, and I started having um, uh, metaphysical experiences that I really didn't know what to do with. I had absolutely no context for them. So this far predates Cosmo the Mystic Monkey and in a lot of ways was a stepping stone towards that. And there was one night, and I'm I'm like way out in, in the middle of nowhere living in a dome homesteading, right? And I looked up at the sky one night, beautiful starry night And I started just talking out loud and saying, I'm beginning to get the feeling that there's more going on here than I had realized before. But if it's true, and how much hubris is this? If it's true, I need a sign and I need it right now. And when I said that, this shooting star went across the sky. And I just said, okay, thanks. And I started acting as if. I don't know who, I don't know what. I, I, you know, we can, yeah, we can mess about with names later and try to figure this out. But what's important to me is that I said something, you heard me, you responded in a way that I understood. That's all I need right now. And I just started living that way. But I also needed a spiritual community in which I could not only contextualize my experience, but contextualize my life and live into it. And that, in a lot of ways, is what led me to Judaism. I hung out with Hawaiians, but I could go only so far, and no farther, because I wasn't Hawaiian. Uh, you know, I hung out in sweat lodges and medicine wheels and all of that, but I could go so far, no farther, because I wasn't that either. And my joke is that the Jews took me in, so I stayed. But the truth of the matter is, what really attracted me about Judaism is that it had a, has a language. For understanding mystical experience, I could I could relate to the lexicon and the cartography and the values and the uh, calendar. I mean, I relate to the Jewish calendar like a surfer relates to a tide chart. You know, we're counting the Omer right now. I'm a happy camper. So, it's in the mid 1990s. I've moved to Santa Cruz. I've connected with this Jewish community. I've got a Jewish partner and I started hanging out in that world. And I went from being this, you know, wild hippie ho- homesteading out in the middle of no place to saying, I'm, you know, I'm getting in my 40s and I should start acting like a responsible adult and, you know, do something safe. I got myself an office job and I got taken out by a computer mouse within the year. So I'm like, you know, now totally disabled. I can't sign my name without crying. It's, you know, it's really bad. And meanwhile, all of my friends in the Jewish, a group of my friends in the Jewish community, similar to Maui, I had my Elizabeth Kubler-Ross friends. All of a sudden, now I've got my Heber Kadisha friends. They're starting a Heber Kadisha. You know, this is a Reform congregation, but it is Santa Cruz. So, you know, very forward thinking. And And I'm hearing them talking about Tahara. I really wanted to be part of it. And I was feeling really left out, along with everything else I couldn't do. Here was something else I couldn't do. And then I found out about the ceremony of Shmerah. And I went, this is something that I can do. I can sit with a body and read Psalms and talk with this person who has just left their body. And so I did. By the time I got my full capacity back, I was so hooked. I'm like, you know, and now I can take care of bodies, too. And. I will say that at first it was very difficult for me. I felt like I had this horse and rider relationship with my body. The horse didn't want to go into the room. And the rider was like, we're going in there because we got to figure this out. So that same thing that started with Cosmo back in the 80s was really re-stimulated. I have to understand this because when you're in a community, or a congregational Kedisha. you're taking care of the bodies of people that you know, your friends, their parents, God forbid, their children. You're you're seeing it all. I think Holly Blue's journey
1: to Judaism is pretty awesome. I don't know if it was intentional or not in how she told her story, but it was nearly in the same breath that she talked about finding a Jewish community, that she talked about the Chavrisha and finding her place. Almost immediately in that group and in that work. I also want to draw your attention to a point that Holly Blue made about not instantaneously being comfortable going into the Tahara room to be with and ritually wash the body of the deceased. Only now am I beginning to understand the wide differences in the roles that people have along the way, and just how many ways we honor the dead. The ritual of Tahara is intense, and so hearing Holly Blue's beginning. From a place of uncertainty and discomfort, I wanted to know how she was able to move from that to become the leader of her Chavra Kadisha.
0: There are two things that come to mind. And one is going back to that horse and rider saying, you know, I got to figure this out. I got, you know, my body does not want to go into the room where that dead person is, but my being has to understand. And I would say about the first ten years I was doing it, that was going on. I'm like, you know, claw marks across the parking lot. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I want to do this. We are doing this. And then one day, I'm hanging. I was hanging out with a with a Sufi friend, and I don't even remember where we were other other than we were standing by our cars in a parking lot somewhere. And she said, Oh, 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 I have something to read to you. And she went and got this old tattered book of Hazard Anayat Khan's teaching. And Hazard Anayat Khan is, you know, like, think 100 years ago and he he brought Sufism to the West. So she whips out this book on, on healing. And she reads something to me, which I would have to go find the book in order to give it to you verbatim. So what I'm going to tell you is what I have come to understand based on what he said there. What he said basically is that The body and the being occupy basically the same space. So like they're in phase with one another on a bioelectromagnetical congruence. So they can occupy the same space. And when they fall out of phase with one another, they can no longer occupy the same space. And it's a little bit like, when you, when you take a couple of magnets and you put them together one way and you really, it's hard to get them apart. You put them together the other way and you can't get them together. And that's life and death. Simple as that. And just like that moment when I was looking at the stars and, then it, and the shooting star went by and I went, okay, thanks. I had another one of those, uh, okay, thanks moments. I get this. Boom, cognitive paradigm shift. Just like that. And it changed the whole experience of going into the Tahara room for me. But then there was something else that happened, which is that the daughter, the only child of a dear friend of mine, died in a car accident. And my friend asked me to take care of her body. And it honestly was one of the most difficult things that I've ever done in my life and one of the most meaningful. Because I knew, I knew that I was picking up that body and washing it, praying over it, dressing it as a stand-in for her mother because it was something that was mine to do, not hers. And that's the way we are in the Chavar Kedisha. It's like, you know, unless there are really special circumstances, family members are not in the room. And those of us who come in and do the work that we do, while well, saying this very personally, when I go into the Tahara room, when I take care of a body now, there's a level on which it's not even me. I step into that room as a representative of the Heber Kadisha for, like, the last 2,000 years, wherever we are. I am a member of, of, of that sacred society, that those holy friends. This is what we do. And I felt that kind of love. The love for the mother, the love for the daughter, the love for the grandmother, the love for the for the lineage, because I know them all. And that love has stayed with me. So that now when I did the ceremony of Tahara, I always remember that. And there's this moment, inevitably, when whoever it is, that body needs to be adjusted on the table. And I want that moment to be mine because I have the opportunity to pick up that body in my arms and say to myself, this was once a newborn baby and someone picked up this little thing for the first time and it's my holy privilege to pick it up for the last time and to feel the entirety of the life-death cycle right here, up close and personal. When I come out of a Tahara room, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of falling in love with someone so deeply that you didn't want anybody to look at you. But if you've ever had that experience, you have a sense of what it is that I'm talking about, you know, because I feel so vulnerable. Yes, but in the way that is a privilege to feel vulnerable. It's a blessing. To feel that kind of vulnerability. In fact, you know, we 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 talk about Tahor and tame, uh and those are those are terms that traditionally have have uh, applied to purity and impurity around being in the presence of a dead body or various other times. But um, Nina Rubin, who is this extraordinary member of the Chaver Kedusha. Uh, recontextualized them so that Tame, which traditionally would be referred to as being impure, as being spiritually vulnerable. And I so resonate with that understanding, you know, because that's it. That's it. We just, we feel the permeability of everything so acutely.
1: This teaching of reimagining tame or impurity as being spiritually vulnerable kind of shook me. I'm thinking about it as if we are normally in a state of purity or tahor, what would make us the opposite of that, metaphorically speaking? And I'm also thinking about stretching my brain to imagine different possibilities about the opposite of being spiritually pure. Nina's teaching that being spiritually vulnerable is the inverse of what we usually are, is a sobering and honest thought. For those of us who won't find ourselves in the work of the Chayver Kadisha, it's an interesting question about what might shift us from Tahor to Tameh. What does it mean for each of us to find ourselves cracked open a little, raw, and ready to experience things larger than ourselves? Could we do it intentionally? could stepping out to step back in be part of our lives in a meaningful way I could have continued talking with Holly Blue about the Chaver Kadisha for a long time but I also wanted to hear about her work outside the Jewish community specifically around natural death care and green burial
0: I teach about um you know natural death care in all of its aspects um I've I've taught um, home funeral guides. So they're, you know, they're, they're people who um, whatever religious tradition they're from, the idea is, is after a person dies to keep the body at home and care for it at home and vigil in whatever way is appropriate, and then go directly to, you know, final disposition. Don't have to be Jewish to be involved in green burial. Although I did have a conversation with, with really, you know, one, one of the major, major advocates and teachers in Green Burial, where I was thanking her for inviting me. I was, I was uh, part of a, a interfaith panel in the uh, Green Burial Council's conference last year, and uh, I thanked her for inviting me. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. We're thanking you guys, meaning the Jewish people, because she said, you are the ones who, without you, this wouldn't be, We wouldn't be able to do this because you guys are the ones who advocated for being able to follow your traditional practices and kept it possible for the rest of us. So the old embalming case and vault that is is so much uh, still such a conventional way of doing things, which on the one hand I do understand, and it was something that we, as a greater culture, evolved together and colluded and participated and but as we, we learn better and we know better we can do better and that's a very interesting tipping point that that is occurring on a way beyond the Jewish radius at this point.
1: We also found ourselves chatting about how chabra kadisha intersects with green burial. And for Holly Blue a lot of it comes down to how we treat living things whether that's people or the earth.
0: And it has to do with not only caring for human beings, but caring for the earth itself in a in a way that is really loving and respectful and restorative. And, and honestly, that is one, you know, I was talking about the lexicon and cartography and the, the thing that I didn't list then, which is kind of ironic because it's right at the essence for me is The way that we care for our bodies when they are spent. And I like to use the word spent rather than dead, because when I leave this body, I'm not the only living being in it. You know, if you think about the gut microbiome, you know, there's plenty of life going on in this body after I leave the premises. And in fact, you know, I look at the gut microbiome and all those little guys in there. And I got to the point where I started thinking about my gut microbiome and everything else that's going on in there as like the stage crew, you know, and I'm, I'm the one woman show out there. Um, but what does the stage crew is, do as soon as the production is over? They break the set. They know how to do that. That's their job and when we give our bodies back to the earth in a jewish way washed dressed in simple fabrics that that disintegrate placed in a casket that is made of soft wood with holes drilled in the bottom of it and not a lot of fancy anything no metal no metal i mean I, you know when you build a jewish casket it has no metal in it, you know, it, and it goes into the ground and it sits on the earth or even God willing. And we get to do this here in the community where I live, we can even do shroud only burials, you know, where there is no casket and the body lies on the earth. And you really get that very visceral kinesthetic back into the earth we go you know these these wonderful living things that we get to live inside become like probiotic capsules that we feed the biosphere it's extraordinary and that's the way we do it it's it's absolutely amazing
1: how holly blue sees the dots charted on her map and how she reflects on them to tell a story of one moment leading to the next highlights her intentional approach to life and to learning.
0: Uh, At the ripe old age of 70, I feel like I finally got here. I finally got to why I'm here. Why all of those experiences that I had before were, you know, like if if you watch a, if you read a really good book or you watch a really good play, a screenplay, you realize that nothing has been wasted. That everything is there for a reason because we're going to need it later, even if it seems totally random right now. And going back for a moment to that shooting star, that's kind of formatted my understanding that whatever is happening, it may not make any sense now, but it will if I'm patient and I really watch for meaning with a capital M, you know, and look for the resonances. So yes, absolutely. I can, I can say, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. And especially somebody who, you know, like I don't, I don't have kids. I don't have grandkids. I don't have that kind of legacy. And so for me legacy is something that I really pay attention to because it just doesn't happen per force through, you know, doing a good job of raising your kids or, or, Or whatever, I have to be, I have to look for something that is worth investing that much of my soul essence into. And this is it.
1: In this last part of our conversation, Holly
0: Blue reminds us
1: that while we can't control everything life hands us, we can choose how we respond.
0: My mother's response to the death of human beings was so dramatic. That I was raised to think that death was inherently a trauma, that we were all supposed to clatter like a bunch of dominoes off into trauma land, and that that's all it is. When it comes to the sort of, I don't know, I want to say Hollywood training that we've had about, uh, you know, that devastating loss and you know we're supposed to be a certain way you know and it's as I said you know with that one passing it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life perhaps even the hardest and yet deeply meaningful deeply empowering death is also here to teach us and if we are so caught up in acting out what we've been taught, instead of breathing into the pain and experiencing what is there to be learned, we're really missing out. We're really missing out. We can't pretend that we're not going to die. That thing about death and taxes is only half true. I've seen plenty of people get out of paying taxes. The other thing, not so much. And it's there to teach us. And when you pick up the body of somebody you love in your arms and you allow yourself to get up close and personal with the great mystery. I was at a conference one time and talking with somebody and she said to me, I don't understand how somebody who does such depressing work could be so bubbly. And I just busted out laughing because I'm like, honey, that's why I'm so bubbly, because I realize how precious this is. You know, it's like when I sit down in the morning with my couple, whatever, to do my morning writing practice and my cat comes and sits in the middle of it and starts face butting and purring. I've had enough precious pets die to know that whatever it is I might be about to scribble in my journal is not nearly as important as rubbing my face in that fur and feeling her purring and showing up for the love. We we rush through our days instead of showing up for the moments when love is just in our face there to be experienced. We're missing out on why we're here because we're so busy thinking we know what we're doing. You know, when the gifts are right in front of us, but we're just too busy to notice. And then one day it's gone and you're going, I don't even remember what I would have written in my journal that morning, but boy oh boy do I miss that fur in my face.
1: Being part of a Hever Kadisha is considered one of the greatest good deeds a person can perform because the deceased can't say thank you. Holly Blue's work and legacy is both public in her teaching and advocacy and also exists in the unseen parts of Judaism. In the countless times, she has granted a person the final respect and honor they deserve. Thank you, Holly Blue, for sharing your story and your wisdom. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.